Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today, I'd like to welcome Joy Redstone to the podcast. She is the director of the Community Counseling Center and an adjunct faculty. And prior to coming to Naropa, she was the executive director of the Bridge House for seven years. And we'd like to welcome her to the podcast. So thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks so much. It's fun to be here. Yeah. I'm going to mention a couple other things about myself because they are things that I think will relate and are important. Please do. One is that I am an artist and a writer. Mm -hmm. I write for the Daily Camera. And I want to mention that because it's very important to the question of what I'm doing at Naropa and the mission of the Community Counseling Center. Mm -hmm. And the Bridge House, I don't know if everybody might know what that is. That was a day shelter for homeless people Mm -hmm. in Boulder. And it relates to... Part of the reason I'm here at the Community Counseling Center is that I am really, really passionate about helping and working with people that are poor. And that was, that's been a common theme yeah. um, in my career. And it really relates to why I worked at the day shelter and why I'm working here at mm-hmm. the Community Counseling Center. I want to tell you some stories about that. And I'm a big believer in telling stories. That's why uh, I like to write and why I like to create art. And Yeah, I think we all like some stories, so. Yeah, and to me, therapy is about sharing stories. Mm -hmm. So so this year I turned 50, Mm -hmm. or this week I turned 50. Oh, happy birthday. yesterday was my five-year anniversary of Mm. working at Naropa. So it's been a kind of big week on a lot of different levels. And I've been in that reflective state. Mm-hmm. So the stories that I want to tell go back a long ways. I want to tell stories about a few stories about growing up. When I was growing up, our family was, was really pretty poor. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really know at the time that we were poor. My mom was... Uh, a hippie and she made growing food and canning and freezing seem like it was just the epitome of her hippie values, which was very fun at the time. But I do know that we very rarely had new clothes. And I really remember things like only getting one pair of new shoes a year. Mm -hmm. And of course they were always what I considered to be the ugly shoes. Mm. Um, I've been working that out for a long time. I've <laughs> yeah. got a lot of shoes now. Nice. But those experiences, we were pretty isolated mm-hmm. and there were a lot of ways in which my family was touched by not just poverty, but addiction and mental illness. Yeah. And like most of us, I think that my pathway into helping people was created by, by those experiences. And I did what a lot of people do do. I got an education. I don't know if I mentioned that I grew up in central Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know much about how Germanic central Pennsylvania (laughs) is. And it is all about education and hard work. Yeah. 
So I launched into like, I will educate myself to the extreme and I will work harder mm-hmm. than anybody else. Yeah. And I, and I just, I went for that with a full gusto mm. and my very first job out of college and then out of graduate school as well was working in a large homeless shelter in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really fully understand why that spoke to me so much, why I felt so passionate about helping people, yeah. why it felt so important to connect with people who were so deeply misunderstood and looked down upon and despised. I just had no sense that I was working out my own stuff. But I was, of yeah, course. Totally. I went on to be a social worker and we'll fast forward through, you know, various <laughs> various jobs. But when I was working here in Boulder at the Bridge House, I also experienced a time of deep poverty. I'd gone through a divorce. Yeah. I was not making a great salary. I had two small kids, both in daycare. Mm-hmm. And we were in the place where I was going to EFA for food and the kids were on WIC and Medicaid. It was such a formative experience to mm-hmm. be serving poor people, experiencing poverty and living in this culture in Boulder where there's not much room for that. Yeah, And I experienced firsthand some of the things that I focus on every single day in my work here at the Community Counseling Center, like what it feels like to try to get help at places where you maybe you're, you just don't fit their profile exactly, Mm -hmm. or their instructions aren't totally clear to you, or you ask someone for help and they very, in a very well-meaning way, tell you information, but it's the wrong information. Mm. And for me, at that point, I was working two jobs, so every moment was precious. So when I was like running down well-meaning but incorrect information, that might be like the only hour of the day that was like my time to myself Mm -hmm. and it was so hard and frustrating and dispiriting and it was very silencing I felt that experience which I don't want anyone to ever experience when they walk through the door that feeling of like I have to be a good poor person I have to be Mm -hmm. the kind of poor person that people like or that doesn't speak up too much even when rules or policies made absolutely no sense I felt afraid to speak. And I remember that vividly. What prompted that from you? What made you feel that way? That you had to be the nice, well put together person? Because I so desperately needed the help. I remember when I was signing up for, it was like WIC or food stamps or something. I think it was WIC. And I didn't know that you had to bring the original copy of your kid's birth certificate. And It wasn't written anywhere yeah. on any instructions because yeah. I'm like an instruction reader, right? Yeah. Like a rule follower. <laughs> and, you know, it was not posted or written down mm-hmm. anywhere. And and I felt so angry. I had like rushed there after work. Yeah. I had to get to daycare by a certain time. It was like my one little window. Yeah. And I really wanted to be sarcastic. I wanted to complain. And I mm. kept on thinking like, what's bigger here? The help I need for my kids? Or my urge to complain right now. Yeah. And I just needed the help a lot more than I needed to complain. Yeah. There seems like there's no room to push back on the system that is hard to follow at some points or isn't 
giving you the full information. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't seem logical mm. to the recipient how a place puts together their policies. And... Uh, but unless you are really, really inviting people to tell you about their experience, yeah. you will never know that because a lot of people need your help more than they need to complain or tell you yeah. that it doesn't fit them. Yeah. We have so many ways of gathering back information about our clients' experiences here. Mm -hmm. Survey monkey things and client satisfaction surveys and things posted in the bathroom about how to complain to the director, <clears throat> i.e. me, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Just all these different ways of trying to encourage people to have their voice here. Mm -hmm. Another experience out of being poor is about privacy. Mm. One day I was at EFA and I was waiting to go to the food bank. And mind you, I was being an ED at the same time. It just mm -hmm. doesn't didn't pay that well. Mm -hmm. And I see the then director of EFA who yells out, Joy, what are you doing here? It's so good to see you. And I, it was like I was in a public waiting room. Like, yeah. And I just said, just getting called out. Yeah. I said, well, I'm here to use the food bank. Mm. And he was really crestfallen. He was a, you know, he, I'm not trying to make him sound insensitive. He was a good, good person. Yeah. But he just didn't, couldn't put together the idea that someone that could work hard and be successful was also someone that was experiencing poverty. Yeah. So there are, again, this is something I think about every single day. What is the experience of privacy? I mean, obviously there are all these laws and ethics about privacy and confidentiality, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking like, how do we live the values of respect from the mm. ground up of which mm -hmm. privacy and confidentiality are just the tip of the iceberg yeah sometimes that costs money to be private it you know it does that. that's crazy you know, like, isn't it like the more yeah. the more money you have the more privacy you have that's a reason yeah. why we don't make people show their justification for the ink their income to use a sliding scale here. Yeah. It's an honor system. Mm -hmm. We have a chart and it's, you know, the federal poverty guideline chart, you know, mm -hmm. got it right off the internet. <laughs> uh, but we talk to people so specifically, we go multiple times through the process of people getting connected to us. Mm -hmm. We talk about how mm -hmm. we're not going to make them jump through any more hoops than they absolutely have to. Yeah. And that is so important. Why should Poor people have to prove more about their income than rich people. Um, yeah, there's something weird about divulging a lot of information that you feel sensitive about to other people in a capacity that you're trying to get help for things. And I don't know, it seems it seems kind of weird that we need to know everything about someone before we can like, oh, you don't meet the mark, sorry. Or Right. And I don't know, there's something like, about that. Like, I want to have the value right. of inclusion here, yeah. not exclusion. Okay. I mean... My experience from working with homeless people is the vast majority of the people will not abuse the system. Mm -hmm. Any system you make, a couple people will. And that's maybe human nature. I don't want to get too philosophical about that. Yeah. <laughs> but the vast, you know, we would have socks for people to take. The mm -hmm. vast majority of people would take one or two pairs of socks. Even though there are 45 pairs of socks out, 
the value system of the people that were taking the socks was such, I will only take what I need because I need there yeah. to be more for other people because I care about other people. Yes. And people that come to this clinic are exquisitely careful about mm. not overusing our resources for the exact same reason that they want this to be here and accessible for other people. Yeah. I really believe mm. in people, if you can't tell. <laughs> and I believe that most people will be honest and will not take advantage of a system. Yes. Even if you make the system as opening, welcoming and inclusive as you can. Mm-hmm. At any rate, the whole theme that I'm trying to express here is one about access mm-hmm. that when you're, when you're poor and you're working and whatever your family stresses or other internal stresses that you have, it's, Making a system where people can have an ease of access is so important. Nobody comes to counseling because they feel wonderful or everything yeah. is perfect in their life. Mm-hmm. They come because something hurts yeah, or doesn't feel right or is unsettled or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that is hard. It, it takes so much freaking courage to ask for help, yeah, particularly in our culture. Yeah. Very interesting. So that is a value that we're trying to live out here. I also want to I want to s- switch gears a little bit and and talk a little bit specifically about the importance of understanding trauma mm-hmm. and people getting a chance to tell their story. Yeah. When I started working at Naropa, I started working here five years ago doing ten hours a week of substance abuse education. And what I wasn't saying very much was that I was in a very hard place in my life. I had gotten married a year or two before that. And right after I got married, the person um, that I was married to got really, really physically ill Mm -hmm. and was in physical agony. And now you can analyze why working felt like a vacation Got a yeah. little bit of a workaholic thing going on sometimes. Yeah. But for me, I wanted to be in that place where I felt comfortable and like I was being of service. So mm-hmm. I, I came to Naropa. And you know how it is that you find the things that you need sometimes, even though you don't exactly yeah. know mm-hmm. why you need them. I had this strong intuition that Naropa was the right place for me. You know, on Facebook, when they do those, like, on this day, those memory deals. Uh Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I look at those, and it came up recently because it was the anniversary. It was, like, I was posting things five years ago. I got, I'm so excited to start Mm. work at Naropa. Um, Nice. And I was just thrilled, right? Yeah. My intuition was that this was this place that was a kind and gentle place where I could both be of service mm-hmm. and I could lean into the kindness a little bit. Yeah. And as that story progressed, I want to keep on underlining story because I really want to talk about why story uh-huh. in therapy is important. Yeah. But as that story progressed, it had a really, really terribly sad ending, mm-hmm. which was that three and a half years ago, the person I was married to took his life and It was such a terrible shock and sadness at the time. And again, 
I didn't really tell a lot of people at the time. I I had strong emotions and mm-hmm. I wanted to be professional at work. Yeah, totally. I didn't want to be bursting into tears. Why do you why do you feel like you had to hold that close to your heart and not share it, you know? Cuz like you were saying when people come to therapy, it takes a lot for them to come. What do you think you were experiencing that made you kind of hold that in? I wasn't ready to be the poster child for like recovering from someone's suicide. I just wasn't ready. Too soon. It was too soon. Yeah. But there's a reason I'm talking about it now. And Mm -hmm. that is the importance of telling the story when you're ready in a place where people care about you and support you Mm. because that is what I have experienced at Naropa in informal ways and informal ways this has been a place where I have been invited to be myself. I have been invited to tell my story. And you know what? Sometimes it takes me a couple invitations. Totally. You know? Yeah. I'm used to, remember I, the central Pennsylvania Germanic background? Mm-hmm. I'm used to toughing it through. I'm yeah. used to, like, I want to be strong. Mm-hmm. I learned about this thing called the burdened endure <laughs> archetype at Naropa. And I was like, holy moly my whole life explained in an archetype what did you know interesting um but at any rate that's maybe a little bit of an answer to why Mm. it was hard to say Mm. but i have been the longer i am here the more convinced i am that i am welcome to be here in my full self yes and that is the most meaningful gift i have ever experienced in a workplace yes and that is what fires me up Mm-hmm. intensely about working here at the community counseling center. Yeah. People need to tell their stories mm. and the stories ideally are received by people who have both love and knowledge. Yes. The knowledge is important. I don't want to be out of balance on either side of that equation, like understanding trauma, understanding grief and bereavement, having the intellectual frameworks to have enough distance so that you can be a guide for another person that is important but it is nothing without love and it is nothing without being able to sit in compassionate presence with someone's deep deep suffering Mm. this year i went to a suicide commemoration event called hope lights the night yeah and of four or five of the interns from here went with me to volunteer to give everyone that goes has lost someone to suicide. Right. Mm -hmm. And they were there to volunteer their counseling time. One of my interns sat next to me and just had her hand on my shoulder while I cried. Yeah. There was very, it, it was a beautiful service. There was incredibly beautiful music Everyone's names were read. Candles were lit. I mean, all the beautiful elements of ritual, which I also didn't really understand ritual very much before coming to Naropa. In this beautiful ritual, I could have felt alone. But I asked, I asked, and that's a shift, right? Like I asked, please sit next to me. And then she asked me. Did you say that out loud or is that like in your mind? No, I literally asked that out loud. Yes, that's some freaking Ask for growth. what you need. Yep. Yeah. Growth right there. Beautiful. And then she asked me to put her hand on my shoulder. 
Mm-hmm. And all she did was have her hand on my shoulder for about 10 or 15 minutes while I cried during the service. Yeah. Not, no words were needed at all. Yeah. For me to understand that she was hearing and seeing part of my story and that she was receiving it in a spirit of profound compassion. Yeah. So why does this matter for our clients? It matters because the bits and pieces I'm telling you of my story mm-hmm. are so universal. Pain, struggle, poverty, addiction, trauma, mental illness, all of those things have deeply touched my family life for my entire life. Yeah. And they still do. Mm-hmm. And I know that healing is provided by people that have the courage and the presence and the knowledge to, to walk next to someone in hearing their story. Yeah. You, don't, you don't want to be too far ahead. Mm-hmm. People feel when their therapist feels like they have the answer. And believe me, it's really tempting to want to have the answer. I actually want to have the answer all the time. You know, that's one of my things I have to watch as a therapist. (laughs) I've been through a lot of experiences, so I have a lot of knowledge. It's like a human thing to want to know the answer. Oh, hell yeah. To want to think you have it. Yeah, it's so (laughs) human and it's constantly recognizing Mm -hmm. that in yourself as a therapist and stepping away from it and making sure you're there with the person and you're not too far ahead in the sense that you have the answer. Yeah. People have their own answers. Yeah, I was about to say that. It feels it feels as though therapy is a solution to discover the answer is within all yeah. the time and then the therapist is there to guide you to that and to be a container for you to realize that yeah. you are a powerful being that Absolutely. Can, that can figure it out on your own. You know, little confession, I did not Please. train at Naropa. Uh, I trained a long time ago (laughs) as a social worker at a pretty kind of formal back East type of school. So I seriously had to unlearn some stuff. Yeah. But it seems like you've been practicing your whole life. That's what it sounds like. Uh, probably so. Yeah. Well, I find that most, most people that are therapists come from families where there was difficulty or pain. Yeah. And sometimes it's like we're the most sensitive ones, Mm -hmm. you know, or the ones that learned to not turn the destructiveness inward. But training as a social worker, one of the things that they teach you about are, well, two things that are really, really important Mm -hmm. and that I want to teach the interns and externs here and that I want this clinic to embody are the principle of self-determination and the principle of looking at the person in the environment. Yeah. Self-determination means essentially what we were just talking about. A person has the right answer for them. It may not look like the answer that I ideally as a therapist think would be best for them, but they have their own answers within. And every time that we can be a conduit or a guide to helping them understand what their internal answers are and to maybe actualize those. That's the gift we have to offer people. Another bit that really is important is the person in the environment part. 
I kind of tend to have some dark humor, you know, go through dark stuff, get some dark humor, right? But I always say to my students and to myself and to clients, like, it's amazing how, forgive the word, but mentally ill a person can look when they're desperate and or they think their kids are at risk or they're hungry yeah. or they're overwhelmed. Yeah. A person can look far less healthy than they actually are in mm. those moments of extraordinary stress. And when we put ourselves in that person's shoes and we have some sense of the weight and the burdens and the stresses and the different directions are being pulled in, it makes sense, right? But we yeah. fall away from remembering that. Yeah. And when someone is fed and their kids are okay and they're housed and they have what they need, that in and of itself makes a person infinitely more healthy. Yeah. I mean, I teach a lot about the DSM here in the clinic mm-hmm. because it's the language of the greater, you know, mental health field. Yeah. But it's only ever just a snapshot. Yeah. And I encourage people to re- remember that, that we're seeing a person at a snapshot in time and whatever our judgments are about that, despite the fact we're working in a system that pulls mm-hmm. for judgment and diagnosis, yeah. that it's just a snapshot. Yeah. Interesting too. I was thinking about how when you're looking at someone, you can feel their energy, you can like feel their presence. By doing that, we as humans are judging them. As therapists, we're diagnosing, I guess, mm-hmm. is the word we want to use. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, you're not feeling their burden, but you're feeling their energy. You're mm-hmm. you're being exposed to how they feel. But biologically, they're probably totally fine. They probably have enough water. Their body's functioning correctly. But they're dealing with other uh, stresses that may affect them in a different way. Like, mm-hmm. is this woo-woo or not? But their aura might be changed. Their energy they mm-hmm. present to people. The you can energy. feel someone's on edge. The energy of know? desperation. Yeah is really, really insidiously difficult for that person that it's experiencing it mm-hmm. and and hard to be with. I want to, um, I know we only have a few more minutes, so yeah. I want to just bring it back to story. Please do. For a second. When I have told my story out loud instead of just in my own mind, when mm-hmm. I've said it out loud to people that witness me and see me and hear me and care about me, Words have come out of my mouth that were truths about my experience that I didn't even know that mm. I knew. Yeah. I did not even have an inkling of the level of resilience that I have had. Yeah. But I have expressed words that were about strength and resilience. And when I heard myself say them out loud, I knew that they were true. If the therapy we provide here gives someone a container, a compassionate calm, loving, knowledgeable container to tell their story and to hear their truth by expressing it. That is, that is my, my goal and my passion and my reason for being here. Yeah. And my other reason for being here, and I'll just be lighthearted for a second, is it's fun. I love being with students. It's fun. We enjoy each other. We find a way to hear the stories that sometimes have elements of darkness and pain and still be with each other in light yeah. and laughter. Mm-hmm. And that's another really important part of teaching is how to have one foot in that world where we can really see and experience other suffering mm-hmm. and be able to come back into the world that's yeah. light and laughter and yeah. fun and being 
okay ourselves. Those are some of the things I really, really want to yeah. accomplish here. Yeah, and it, it sounds like earlier you were talking about the, the science of how a therapist goes about their work, and then there's the energetic holding space and it sounds like the laughter really fits in that the having fun you know like you could look at this job and like is this fun but helping people is fun it's enjoyable it's life-giving yeah and you're giving life it's like a gift that keeps on giving it's giving and receiving yes all the time yeah and as long as that's in balance you're okay yeah oh my gosh it's so beautiful thank you thanks this is fun <laughs> Well, it was really nice to have you. That was Joy Redstone on our podcast. She is the director of the Community Counseling Center and an adjunct faculty. And she was also the executive director of the Bridge House for seven years. And I'd just like to say thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.